0: Our scripture lesson today comes from the great call story of the call of Moses, Exodus 3. Let's share in God's good word together. Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led his flock beyond the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of a bush, and he looked, and the bush was blazing, yet it was not consumed. Then Moses said, I must turn aside and look at this great sight and see why the bush is not burned up. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, Here I am. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. This is my story. This is my story. But every story is a part of someone else's story. Every story sits inside God's story. God's great story of redemption. God's great story of salvation that was true for Moses. It's true for me. It's true for you, even if you don't quite know that just yet. So if you'll take out your sermon notes, we will continue this week to see how God calls us into this great story of salvation in this life today and in the next. Now, last week, uh, Reverend Andy did an awesome job of showing us the story of Abraham and how his life mirrored some of the same calls that God had on Abraham in the book of Genesis, the very first book of the Bible, and how God called Abraham to a new place that he had never been, and how exciting and yet also how anxiety-producing that must have been for Abraham and for all of us who step into a new place that God is calling us to. So this week, we move forward to the book of Exodus, and we look at the story of Moses. And in some ways, you might say that really it's the opposite of last week's sermon. For Abraham, the call was to go to Yalak, to get thee out to a new place that Abraham had never been. This week, God's call to Moses was to go back. To go back to a place he thought he had escaped. And I'll talk a little bit more about this in the future, but that that resonates more with, with my story. A story to go back. So, if you look at this Exodus event and the setup, if you will, in Exodus 1, 8 to 10, this is what the scripture says. Now, a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Now, if you remember who Joseph is, he looked right, he smelled right, he did the right thing every time. As a matter of fact, if you look at Joseph through the Genesis stories, his name becomes Israel. He is a self-portrait, a mirror of God's chosen people. When, if you want to know what it is to be a good Jewish boy, you look at Joseph. Everything he did was right. And and here it is, here's the tell, here's the foreshadowing. A new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And this is where you cue the music, dun-dun-dun. Everybody knows something bad's coming. And so he said to his people, look, the Israelite people are more numerous and more powerful than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, the Pharaoh says, or they will increase. And in the event of war, join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. And so what we find from the very beginning of this exodus are things have changed. It's not a good time in the land anymore. Joseph's no longer in charge. Abraham's people that we looked at last week have become slaves. And if you're following along, slaves is your first blink there. Uh, it's a different day. It's a time of turmoil. It is a time of great angst. Abraham's people, God's people, have become slaves. And, and so the, the, the story continues. The, the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, when you act uh, as a midwife... To the Hebrew women, and you see them on the burst if it's a boy, kill him. So, not only are they slaves, now now they're going to kill all the children. And, and if you were to read this in the original, it's not just the Hebrew boys. Um, the, the Pharaoh at that time would kill all the male children um, in this scripture, in this place. He says, So, if you see them on the burst if it's a boy, kill him. And if it's a girl, she shall live. But the midwives feared God, and they did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but they let the boys live. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Now, this word fear in Hebrew is yare. Will you say that with me? Yare. And it is a very important word. It's the same word we find in Genesis 12 when Abraham is about to sacrifice Isaac and the Lord stops that because they knew that Abraham then feared God. It's the same word. And if you were to go back into the wisdom literature of Proverbs 9, uh, I think it's verse 10, it is. um, The fear of the Lord, this yare, is the beginning of wisdom. And so this yade, this fear, is a right honor, a right respect, uh, an an obedience unto God in all things. So because they feared God, because they honored God, because they obeyed God and honored your blank there, God gave them families. Because when you put God first, it's when Jesus says, seek ye first the kingdom of God. That's what we're talking about, this yade, this proper respect and honor and obedience to God. That's where real life comes from. When you walk in the way of the Lord, in the, in the way of wisdom, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, the scripture says. And, and so the story continues, and, and it actually uh, gets worse. The Pharaoh commanded all his people, every boy that is born to the Hebrews, you shall throw into the Nile, but you shall let every girl live. Now this looks horrible on its face, but you'll notice that there's a change here. You no longer kill them at the stool, but you just throw them in the river. Well, aha, here's the loophole. So God is making a way where there had seemed to be no way. He will make it in the river, and later he will make it through the sea, but there's a long way to go before we get there. There's this foreshadowing. And, and when uh, his mama got this idea, well, I'll put him in the river, but I'm going to make him a safe way. So the woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine baby, this little Moses, she hid him for three months. And when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him. Now, if you were to look up the Hebrew word for papyrus basket, it actually is literally translated Noah's Ark. And everybody who heard that was like, oh, this is going to be good. Good. What what he meant for evil, the Lord's going to turn for good. She put him in Noah's ark, it's going to be okay. And they all got this sense of, oh, I wonder how this turns out. So when she could hide him no longer, she got a Noah's ark and placed him there and plastered it with bitumen and pitch. If you know the Noah story, it's the same sort of description of the ark. And she put the child in it, placed it among the reeds on the bank of the river, and his sister, his own sister, stood at a distance to see what would happen. And this is where it gets good, according to my theology professor. My Hebrew professor says that at this point, the Hebrews would just sit back and laugh and laugh and laugh. And, and they, you understand that in ways that we don't, that at this point in history, the Jews were saved over and against the Egyptians. It wasn't that God so loved the world at this point. It was God so loved the Hebrews and hated the Egyptians. That's how they understood it. And so when they told these stories, these tribal stories, they were like, oh, this is awesome. And and the guy telling the story would say something like, and the Pharaoh's daughter is so stupid. And all the people would say, how stupid is she? And he would tell this story. She's so stupid that when she came down to bathe at the river while her attendants walked beside her, she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her maid to bring it to her. And when she opened it, she saw the child, Moses, the one that's going to free us. She saves him. And he was crying, and she took pity on him. And this must be one of the Hebrew children. She even knew as a Hebrew, and she saves him. Then his sister said to the Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go to get a nurse for you from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Yes. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And the Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child and nurse it for me, and I will give you your, say it with me, wages. How dumb is the Pharaoh's daughter? So dumb that she saves the person, and she pays his own mom to nurse him. And they would just laugh and laugh and laugh at what a great story this was about to be. So the woman took the child and nursed it, his own mama. And when the child grew up, she brought him to the Pharaoh's daughter, and she took him as her son, and she named him Moses, because she said, I drew him out of the water. And this is a great story if you're a Hebrew. And, and, and it continues on. It will ellipse forward a little bit. It says, One day after Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and he saw their forced labor. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew and one of his kinsfolk. And he looked this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. By the way, if you need to hide a body, sand's not a great place to do it. When he went out the next day, he saw two Hebrews fighting and he said to the one who was in the wrong, Why do you strike your fellow Hebrew? And he answered, who made you ruler and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? And, oh, he knew that it was time to go. So Moses, afraid, and he thought, surely this thing is known, and Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses again. So it's the same story. He wanted to kill all the children. He's made a way of escape. He wants to kill him again. He's going to escape. So Moses flees from Pharaoh, and he settles in the land of, say it with me, Midian. And he sat down by a well. Now, Midian, friends, represents everything that Egypt is not. The palace of Egypt is high society, it's cosmopolitan, it's the power brokers, it's the place to be. Midian is everything that that is not. It's wilderness, it's shepherds, it's poor, blue-collar labor with stinky, smelly sheep in the middle of nowhere. That's Midian, and that's where Moses goes. To get as far away from, as far away from the life that he knew. And so it's in this, he's, he's lived this way for years now, he's, got, he's gone his own way, he's made a new life for himself, uh, he's got a wife, Zipporah, he's got kids, he's living his life, he's out in the wilderness, and he's just doing his normal day's work, and this is what happens. The Lord says, I have observed the misery of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry on account of their taskmasters. Indeed, I know their sufferings, and I've come down to deliver them from the Egyptians. And everybody's like, Yay! Except Moses doesn't want to have anything to do with it. He knows that life. He says, so come, I will send you to Pharaoh to bring my people the Israelites, out of Egypt. And, and it, you know, if you're hearing the story, you would think, yeah. And Moses would be like, absolutely. I know the ins and outs of that. I, I grew up in the palace. Uh, I know the king. I know all the players. You know, I'm perfectly suited. You know, I, I did all the study that I needed to do. I'm the guy. Send me. I'm ready to go. Is that what he says? No. Moses said to God, who am I? that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt. And God says what God always says, I'll be with you. That's all he ever says. I'll be with you. You go and leave the results to me. You go and I'll be with you. It's really the same thing he said to Abraham. You go, except this time he's sending him back to something that he was really, really familiar with and he really didn't want to have anything to do with it ever Again, he had left there on purpose. You could almost hear the conversation. Go back to Egypt. And Moses is like, have you lost your mind? I know Egypt. I left for a reason. There's a reason I don't live in Egypt. There's a reason I chose Midian. God says, come, I will send you. God sends. That's your blank there. God sends. It is God who sends, and it is God who promises to be with us, even when we are full of excuses. Now, like we've said, every story is made up of smaller stories like chapters in a book. And that's true for me too. Chapter 1 of my story starts with my parents and their love of and commitment to the United Methodist Church. If you don't know my folks, they sit here on the second row. And so they always get real nervous when we get to these parts of the sermons. Because when I had to sit on the first row, um, I hated it. Now they hate it as well. So pray for them today. All right? So I was born 1967. In November, a few months later, in April of 1968, the United Methodist Church, as we know it today, was born. It was a merger between the Evangelical United Brethren Churches and the Methodist Churches to form the United Methodist Church, of which we're a part today. Now, my parents were at this special event in Dallas where this happened. So when I say I grew up in the United Methodist Church, I mean every day of my life, I grew up in the United Methodist Church. I actually predate it. So some of it I loved dad led a camping ministry We were in Bartlesville, some of the greatest memories of my life. But my very earliest memories of the church are not pleasant. They include polyester suits with clipped bow ties that would pinch my neck. Isn't he cute? And that's my sister, Deb, Deborah. And that's what life was like as the son and daughter of a clergy couple in the late 60s, early 70s. And one of my best memories was in this tiny little 500-square-foot house when I was only four years old. And, and money was tight, friends. I mean, really tight. So tight that when we went on vacation, what that meant was a red igloo cooler uh, and soggy peanut butter and jelly sandwiches uh, that you'd pull over on the side of the road because the ice had melted. And that was what you could afford. Cheetos was a luxury if you could get a bag of Cheetos on top of your peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And the thing is, I don't, don't make any mistake about this. I'm not in any way uh, beating on my parents about this. My parents are saints, and they did incredible with what they had. But with a master's degree in family relations and child development from Alabama, and a master's degree in divinity from Southern Methodist University, and the first appointments mom and dad served, they were still available for food stamps because of how little the churches paid them. Yet you could not take the food stamps because that would be an affront to the church. So you had to act as if you were doing okay, even if you weren't. And that's the home I grew up in. So when I say I have great honor and respect for them, I do. I hope we all do. And every clergy person that lived through that time. It was incredible. And so imagine my surprise when mom, as an extra job, was teaching preschool over in Tulsa. She would drive back and forth from Prattville. And she stops by a place that is holy and sacred, even to this day, the Coney Islander and Tulsa. This is, that's what it looks like, even today. My family, if we drive down I-44, we must stop and we must eat conies. That's what we do. Because it's a holy and sacred space for us. And, we, and I get the Cheetos. And the Mountain Dew. And it, it was at this place that my mom stopped when I was four years old, and she said to me, John Mark, today, you can eat as many conies as you want. It's 25-cent Coney Day. Eat as many as you like. And in my mind, we stayed there for the next two weeks uh, eating conies, one after another after another. And we go and we stop and we revere the holiness of the Coney Islander in Tulsa. Because it was such a powerful moment where for one day, at one time, we didn't have to watch and and scamp and save and check the bill and see what you could afford that day, how you could eat one more meal, how you could do it. On this day, you could eat as much as you wanted. It's a beautiful thing. So we got back home. Uh, We lived in this tiny little 500-square-foot house that looked like this. Uh, Again, in a suit. Still in a suit. This house is 500 square feet, friends. It'd fit on this stage, basically, or any one of these sections. It would fit in my garage today. That's how small it was. My sister and I shared a bedroom. We had bunk beds in there. And when I was four years old, my dad and I, I asked him if he would kneel um, by my bedside. And so we did. And so we knelt down at the bottom bunk. And we prayed. And dad said, well, do you trust Jesus like you trust me? I said, well, yeah, dad. Will you do what he asks you to do? Sure, dad. Well, that's what it means for him to be your Lord and your Savior. That you trust him to take care of you the rest of your life? I was like, okay, great. And I said, does this mean I can take communion now? He's like, yep. Now, we don't do that here, so don't get confused. He, he had a long stint in Lutheranism before he came to the good Methodists. Um, so, He said, yes, I was thrilled because I hated waiting on communion while everybody got to take and I didn't get to take. I was a preacher's kid for Pete's sake. But I did. I gave my life to the Lord. And I said, I'm going to follow you. I'm going to do whatever you say. And if you were to look at the rest of my life, the birds always sung. It was always 70 degrees. The sun was always shining and I always did exactly what the Lord asked me. That's a lie. That's not how it works. That's not how the world works. That's not truth. That's not the real story. It wasn't true for Moses. It wasn't true for me. It's probably not true for you. And we moved to Bartlesville. That's a look, isn't it? Yeah. And, and here's, here's the thing. I, I loved that moment where we were at my bed. And I, was, I really did. I stood up the happiest boy in the world. But the thing is, in the Methodist church at that time, you would go to conference, which we, Andy and I did last week. And on Thursday at conference, you would find out where you would live the next week. They didn't tell you before you had a few days to pack up everything you owned and get to wherever the bishop sent you. That's just the way it was. And I remember asking the bishop, hey, where am I going to live this year? And he just laughed and patted me on the head. And so this, you know, this, this was the thing. And so we moved to Bartlesville, and, and it was in this time that I went to a new school when I was a kindergartner, a new school when I was in first grade, a new school when I was in second grade, a new school when I was in fourth grade, a new school when I was in sixth grade, and a new school when I was in seventh grade. And those seven years, I was in six schools. And I was the new kid in all of those schools. We lived in three different home, four different homes in three different towns in six different schools. And this is McKinley Elementary. And it was at these sorts of places that boys like Don Don and John John and Ricky and Toby would pick a fight with the new kid to see how tough he was. And this was also the time where you never got suspended or expelled for fighting at school. You simply saw your PE teacher with a paddle that was about this big with 800 holes in it. And they would whoop you good and send you back to class. Which is great if you're the bully. It's not so great if you're the kid getting beat up every other day. And so that was me. I was the new kid. And, and what dad had taught me was, uh, he taught me how to wrestle and a little bit about boxing. And he'd say, well, you're going to go to a new school today, son. I'm like, yep, I am. And he said, well, find the biggest kid you can find and whoop him in front of as many people as you can. Then they won't mess with you. I was like, okay. I wasn't that big of a kid. But I could wrestle, and so I would wrestle them to the ground, and I would put them in a headlock, and I would say, if I let you up, you promise not to hit me anymore? And they were like, get off me. I'm like, no, really, you got to promise. And then the teacher would come, I'd let them up, and they'd hit me. And, you know, that's how how that would work. And the thing was, one-on-one, I was okay. I could kind of hold my own, but as I was walking home from McKinley, um, Ricky and Don Don and John John and Toby, they all decided they would get me together. And so one held back one arm, the other held back another arm. They pushed me back against a tree, and I couldn't move while the other kids hit me in the stomach and the face. And I was like, well, what am I supposed to do now? And the only thing I had learned at church was to turn the other cheek. And so I did. I turned the other cheek. And the guys were like, what are you doing? And I said, turning the other cheek? And they're like, this guy's crazy. Let's get out of here. And they all ran away. And I never had a problem again. Now, I don't think that's how that scripture is supposed to be lived out at all. (laughs) But it worked. The Lord made it work. It's just the way it was. And so I didn't enjoy being a preacher's kid. I didn't enjoy being the new kid at a school all the time. I didn't enjoy turning the other cheek. I didn't enjoy being in conflict that really had nothing to do with me. And so we would go to church, uh, and church looked like this. Um, If you know the lower left, that's my dad. He was the associate there, right here. There was a senior pastor, the other associate. And guess who that is? That's Mama in the choir loft. So guess who you don't see in the photo? Me or my sister, because we're on the front row. That's like our heads right here, unattended at 5 and 7, except for the watchful eye of Carol and John. Now, when I say sermons are boring, that is not a knock on my dad or myself. That is a knock on these two. So I'm just, I'm just saying. Right? And so we would sit there on the, on the front row, and, and I'd kind of nudge my sister, and she'd nudge me back, and then I'd pinch my sister, and she'd put her claws up my arm. And I would try to hold, because you couldn't talk. You couldn't be loud. And the next thing I know, it was on. I was like, stop it! And Mom would look down from her choir loft. And everybody in the church would go, ooh, they're going to get it now. And we did. We did. He did not want Big Carol coming out of the choir loft. That was, that was spanking time. So the next thing I knew, I was an acolyte. I wasn't in the pew anymore. I was up on stage sitting right next to Dad lighting candles. Um, and that, that was just brutal, sitting in front of everybody as a little kid in a robe and while everybody else looked at you and you're trying not to fall asleep, you know. And, uh, but that was really nothing compared to the receiving line. You imagine being a kid in elementary school meeting two, three hundred new people at once, shaking their hands, uh, and, and saying hello. Still in a suit, as a little guy, my sister doing very well. Uh, and this actually wrapped all the way around the basement at Bartlesville. Uh, this was our last Sunday there. Uh, you can see the next one. I don't know what the deal was. I was trying to be left-handed. All of a sudden, I think it was a scouting thing. Uh, I don't know. And so, you know, that, that looks, I mean, mom and dad are doing a great job. My sister's doing a great job. I was not doing great because I, while I didn't ever say anything, what I saw, I mean, you see this, but what I saw was this. It's like, hello. <laughs> and sometimes they would pinch my, my cheeks and they would kiss me. Oh, I wanted to pinch them back. So then we moved to Guthrie. Huh, still in a suit. You know, my sister, bless her heart. Now, here's, here's the thing you should know. When you're a preacher's family and you move year to year, the person you get closest to is your sister. She's the one that takes care of you. She, you do the, everything with her because you're the only ones you can count on. If you're a military family, you know this. When you're going from place to place to place, you count on one another. And again, my parents are doing the best they can. And so I say things like, oh, well, I want to make some friends. I want to play soccer. They're like, okay. And like, but we can't afford shorts. So we're going to cut off your jeans. Now, Again, that's not a knock on my parents. They don't set their salaries. The churches did. Right? I mean, so they're doing the best they can with what their kids are trying to do. And so when I thought of church, I thought it looked like this. I mean, this, this is the, the, what I thought. You know, silver sets and, and mints. Now, the mints are good. I'll give you that. The mints are awesome. Uh, but the other end of the table, if you were to fellowship dinner, dad and mom would always teach me before we go to the fellowship dinner, one, don't be first in line. And second, you have to take a bite of everything. Otherwise, you hurt the old lady's feelings. So you got to take a little bit of everything, even if it looks like this. Green jello salad, you kidding me? I mean, scariest stuff in your life. They should make movies about this stuff. And at least you can see through that. I mean, the other ones, you don't even know what's in there. I mean, seriously, who does that to people? Don't, don't bring that. right? And so I did the best I could with what I was. I became an Eagle Scout, and I, I, I did what I was supposed to do. I was in, you know, in front of the parsonage there. And, and what you may not be able to tell... Uh, Is that back here? There's a story about this red chair, uh, apparently purchased in the 1930s, never to move off the porch um, at the parsonage. Um, We never sat in them because you know, uh, but you couldn't move them, and so they they were there. And and the thing that you might not know about mom and dad or clergy couples is they see all kinds of stuff. Because what would happen is if you lived in the yellow brick parsonage behind the yellow brick church, everybody knew that you were the pastor. So if you needed help in the middle of the night, 2, 3 in the morning, if you needed help first thing, last thing, they just came to your house, knocked on your door, came in. Because you're the pastor. That's what you're supposed to do. You have to be there for everybody that ever comes by because that's what good Christian pastors do. And their families, by the way. And so Dad actually helped lead a deaf ministry. And in that deaf ministry, there was a deaf mute. Um, who didn't get along with his parents at all. He was in his 20s. Uh, the, nobody knew what to do. The government agencies didn't know how to help him, and so our church helped him. We helped him regularly. Dad particularly would help him. Dad learned how to sign and would, would do great things uh, for this man. And I remember one night, it was about 3 in the morning, uh, we had one of those old bells because the, the Parsons were so old, it would ring like this. dong. dong. And that, that's how it run. And it just started doing that in the middle of the night. Well, it was this man, and he was upset. And dad tried to, you know, reason with him like, you know, it's not socially appropriate to go to someone's home at 3 in the morning and ring their bell till the whole family's up. Like, this isn't the way you do this. Well, he got so mad, he picked up those red chairs, and he started slamming them on the concrete and feeling the vibrations to get his anger out. And of course, all the neighbors are like, what's going on at the parsonage? As we are, you know, having flying metal furniture at three in the morning. That's what ministry looked like for me. That's what I thought it was. So I really wasn't surprised when I read the Exodus story and Moses says this back to God. No. No, God. Suppose they don't believe me or listen to me but say the Lord did not appear to you. He's like, no, I'm not doing this. And and so Moses says to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, oh, my Lord, I have never been eloquent. I can't do this, neither the past nor even now that you've spoken to your servant. I'm slow of speech and slow of tongue. Find someone else. I've been to Egypt. I didn't like it. I left on purpose. Send Aaron. I could relate to Moses. People would say, Are you going to be a preacher like your father? And I said, Oh, no. No, 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 no. Really anything else but preacher. I'll do. And part of that was my sister graduated. She went to college, and that left me alone. Now, I had lots of good friends, and I was really excited about that, but the bishop happened to say, hey, you're moving to Fairview, which was the same year that Footloose came out, and they did not, they were not allowed to dance, so people called me Footloose when I got there. So, we we were by Fairview a couple years ago, and so I stopped by. I love that photo. Hey, I'm Mr. Fairview. And, um, and so here's, here's my school. If you pan out, you can see the entire school all in one place, basically. Tiny little place. Um, Fifty-four people in my graduating class, 50 of whom started kindergarten together. So when I say I was on the outside, I was way outside. It was a hard place to be. First day of school, uh, again, I went there. I didn't get beat up that day. That would happen in the spring. Um... So I went, and, and no one told me they had open campus because where I came from, they didn't have open campus. And so I got on the short bus, and I rode over to the elementary school, and I sat with my knees up by my ears eating with the second graders. And I wondered where all the high schoolers were, but nobody told me. They had the greatest fun with that. Ah, the new kid went to the elementary school for lunch. Yeah, I did. So the next day, I just walked down the street to First Methodist Church where Dad uh, was the senior pastor. And so I would go, and, uh, you know, this, this is the, I'm going to give you some secret knowledge here pastor's kids, drink the leftover grape juice in the refrigerator. So we'd go down, get some grape juice, eat a sandwich, get some Cheetos, walk back to school, while the other kids went to Pizza Hut and did these other things. It took me a while to kind of figure out how to live there without my sister. I was on my own now, and it was incredibly lonely, and I was depressed. Uh, we lived at 101 Sunset Lane, uh, and uh, when it came to my dating life, I was allowed to date the choir director's daughter, so I, I did that. And and she she was lovely. Uh, But if you actually zoomed in by our front door, if you kind of zoomed in, this was what got me most. And that was that the church had put a plaque on our home. As a constant reminder that we were not really welcome there. We were guests. And we would always be guests. Because that house wasn't ours. We couldn't live in it as we pleased. It belonged to the church. And that was the longest two years of my life. It was. So I graduated on a Friday, and I was at Oklahoma State on Monday in summer school. Because the expectations were ridiculous of what it was to be a preacher's kid in that town or in any town. Because everybody knew what you did before you did it. Uh, and if they, they wanted you on the football team, so you're on the football team. They wanted you in the band, so you're in the band. Uh, they needed a trombone player instead of a percussionist, which I wanted to do, so I played trombone. It's just that way. And who's the dork with the football jersey? Well, that'd be me, because you had to do both. And so I'm in my football jersey with the band and also on the football truck. And some people, it wasn't that great. You got to do everything. Well, you know. Now, here's the thing. Not, not to make it too grim. Um, when I got to Oklahoma State, some really wonderful things happened. Because guess what? As a freshman, I had friends from Prattville and friends from Bartlesville and friends from Guthrie and friends from Fairview. And I had my sister's friends. And so as a freshman, I had more friends showing up than most seniors had. It was amazing. It was the most great time. So I want you to see what, how Moses uh, lives this out. It says, And the Lord said to him, Who gives speech to mortals? Who makes them mute or deaf, seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go. And this is the part that we never like to talk about in church, and that is every once in a while the Lord has had enough. Like we've talked about this. You know what I want you to do. Now do it. Now why aren't you doing it? And we still have all sorts of excuses, but make no mistake, friends, at some point you got to go. you just got to go. And he says, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you are to speak. And it takes God's grace. And grace is simply this. Grace is God in action. It's not just a song. It's not just something you hope for. It's something that, that is real, that changes you, that changes the world, that makes it okay even in the hardest of circumstances. It's something God alone can do. And I learned that in a very real way, that sometimes God just steps in and saves your bacon. And you give him thanks and praise because it's all grace. It's all grace. Right before I left to go to Oklahoma State, um, I got my last summer job. And I thought uh, it was going to be a great job. Rocky came out. I saw Rocky 1. I saw Rocky 2. Rocky 3. I lived by Eye of the Tiger. It was great. And I, would, I thought, if I could only work at a meatpacking plant. Now, how dumb is that? If I could go you know, and box on big pieces of meat, then I will be a great football player. That's how I had it in my you know, 17-year-old mind. So I worked at Fairview Meatpacking Plant. And as I did this, um, as, you, as you pan out, you can see there's a long refrigeration unit, uh, and and it would leak. And so my job uh, was to break out the ice off the floor, uh, and then take the meat out to the people in the hundred degree heat. I got pneumonia within like three days. It was miserable, and I got weaker, not stronger. And and it, and around the back is where you killed the animals, the, the hogs, and you know, and the cattle, and all that. And so they'd put them in the chute, uh, and then they would come down the chute. I'll show you the next one. Uh, Chantel is a trooper. Look at her. Doesn't she, she look great? Hey. I'm at the meatpacking plant. And then my job gets better. I got to take the heads and put them in the buckets <laughs> or clean out the insides because you don't, you got to do something with that to stay you know USDA approved. And then you would salt the hides, which are very slick, by the way. you got to be careful with those. Uh, and then you could sell those too. Uh, and this, this was the job. But here's the thing I learned. And that is as the cattle would get closer and closer and closer to this final step where they would open the door and shoot them in the head with the twenty-two they would get more and more antsy. They would get more and more angry. They would pull back and they would fight it and they would fight it and they would fight it and they knew the end was near. And I've never forgotten that because as I look at my own life when it came to surrender and still comes to surrender, it's just like being in that stall. God says, come. And I'm like, I don't want to come. He says, I want you to do this. I'm like, I don't want to do that. He says, no, I'm serious. You got to do that. You got to die to yourself. Surrender. That's the way of Christ. He didn't want to go to the cross. He asked the Lord very clearly in the garden not to go to the cross. But it's true for them. It's true for us. God calls us to things that are hard. Really hard. God calls us to things that make a difference. And we don't want to do it. But ultimately, if we're ever going to step into it, we have to surrender. And God says this, I will be with you. So the final words of Jesus are these. God gets the final word. And whether it's with Moses or whether it's in the New Testament and the Great Commission, the very last words of Jesus, Jesus says, go! Just like God said to Abraham, just like God said to Moses, Jesus says to us, go. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey all of it. All of it, not some of it, all of it. Everything that I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always. Sound familiar? Yes. To the end of age, you're not alone. You're not alone. God's with you. You can do it. And here's where the church falls short. So often we want to say to you, hey, if you're really good at it, if you've got a good skill set and you want to, then please do. And if if you find it distasteful, then just don't worry about it. That's nowhere in the Bible. It's nowhere in the Christian faith. Most of what we get called to is to step back into those places of pain and let God redeem it. And that's hard to do. So, Jesus' teaching, God's teaching is simply this. Number one, go. Go. Two, is make disciples. Teach others as you go along. And three, I'll be with you. That's what he says. Now, before you think that I'm just a self-righteous so-and-so, and the Lord told me to go to, you know, to seminary and to be a preacher, and I knew that, and so you know, uh, that's what's going to happen. Um, that's not what happened. When I graduated from Oklahoma State, I got a broadcast journalism degree. I was still saying no. 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 And if you want to know the rest of the story, I hope you'll come back next week for chapter 2. Hope to see you then.